You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today, we will begin selecting a class president. I'm not allowed to vote, but I strongly suggest you elect Martin. Martin? As your president, I would demand a science fiction library featuring an ABC of the overlords of the genre. Asimov, Mr. Clark! Well, what about Ray Bradbury? I'm aware of his work. Thank you, and keep watching the skies. Hey folks, welcome to The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike White. On this special episode, I am talking to author Jad Smith about his book from the University of Illinois Press, Alfred Bester. If you're not familiar with Bester's work, he is a masterful sci-fi writer. His two greatest novels are The Star is My Destination and The Demolished Man. They have been trying to bring The Star is My Destination and The Demolished Man to the big screen for quite a number of years, usually in chapters about the greatest sci-fi films or the greatest films never made there's usually a mention of one or both of those there is a slight tie-in to movies on this episode but is mostly about science fiction and about alfred bester's work highly recommended and i recommend mr smith's book as well let's go ahead and play the interview and enjoy My name is Jad Smith. Um, I'm a longtime reader of science fiction, and I'm currently an English professor at Eastern Illinois University. And how did you get involved with the Modern Masters of Science Fiction collection? I actually wrote the first book for the series on John Brunner, and um, I had uh, just been talking to an editor at the press about this idea I had for the book. Apparently, at that time, they were trying to get this series off the ground, and so there was uh, just some synergy there. And you said you're a longtime science fiction reader. What kind of got you into the genre? Oh, goodness, I don't know. I was so young. Uh, it's really hard to say. When I was really young, my brother gave me a copy of, of Borges' collected stories. I know Borges isn't always science fiction, but he kind of dabbled in it. And that was really one of the main ways that I got interested in the genre and also through the works of Ursula K. Le Guin. And when was your first time running across Alfred Bester? That's such a difficult question. (laughs) Bester is someone that, from the first time that I read his work, I mean, I think the first work I did read was The Star is My Destination. I reread his work really frequently over the years. And so one reason that I wanted to write on him is that I I personally find his work compulsively rereadable. And uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, why is that? Tell me how you approached writing about Bester's work. Did you want to go in more biographical, more about the stories, or how was that way that you approached this information? The setup for this particular series is that the works will be biocritical. And so what that means is that the author is supposed to produce biocritical works, which means that um, biography is important but only in the context of how it explains some facet of the author's work or career. 
So um, there, there are both elements in the book. It's both biographical, but it's primarily a critical study of Bester's work um, that sort of brings in some relevant biography. You know, when people talk about a lot of science fiction authors, we tend to focus in on, say, Asimov or Bradbury or Clark and the really prolific authors. Bester doesn't necessarily fit into that prolific class. No, that's definitely true. He had a very um, varied career. He actually started off in science fiction. He started writing for science fiction pulps in the late 1930s. And he he produced a number of pretty interesting stories that are very little known now. Um, and after a few years, whenever the comics industry boomed, he actually um, went over two comics and started writing. I think he first started writing Superman, but he also wrote the Green Lantern and Captain Marvel. And from there, he actually um, went into uh, writing radio mysteries like The Shadow, Nick Carter, Charlie Chan, Nero Wolf. He um, also dabbled in TV. And then he came back to science fiction in the 1950s. And that's when uh, most of his most well-known work was written, was during the 1950s. So he wrote for about, I don't know, eight or nine years. And then he actually left the field again, and he became a journalist and worked for uh, Holiday, which was an arts and leisure magazine, until the 1970s, when he returned to the field once more and kind of finished his career there. So he was really only actively writing science fiction for a very small portion of a very long writing career. I was really surprised to read that he was the one that came up with the Green Lantern's oath. Uh, he denies that in interviews. It's been, it was brought up to him several times, and he denied that he actually wrote it, even though it's very frequently attributed to him. Well, did he come up with the character Solomon Grundy for the DC Universe? He did. Did he work in any sort of science fiction area when it came to radio, or was it pretty much just the straight mystery, the Nick Carter, the Charlie Chan kind of stuff? He mostly wrote uh, radio mysteries. Um, some of them had science fictional elements, some of the episodes that he wrote. He had kind of gotten into radio by adapting some of his comic scripts to the radio format. And so pretty much anything he had done in comics would somehow figure in um, to his radio mysteries, including some science fictional elements. It's interesting. We've talked about both John Campbell, because we did an episode on The Thing, and we've talked about L. Ron Hubbard, because we did an episode on Battlefield Earth. But those two names, plus Bester, kind of come together in a very odd occurrence uh, in that kind of from from what it sounds like from your book, might have put him on a different path. Yeah, most definitely. Um, Bester had been writing for radio in the 40s, and he had grown a little bit disgruntled with commercial writing because he felt like there were limitations on what he could do in his scripts, that producers would reject ideas that might be expensive to produce or uh, might be hard for um, audiences to accept and so forth. So he had actually come back to the science fiction genre in the 50s, his most prolific period, um, for creative freedom. And um, when he left the field in the early 40s, he had been publishing in Astounding. There are actually some pretty interesting works that he wrote in, like The Probable Man and Adam and No Eve that gained some notoriety. 
So when he came back, uh, the first story that he published, he, he sent it to Astounding, um, to John W. Campbell. Campbell had called him in for a story meeting um, about, about this particular story, which was titled by Bester, Audie, and Id. And um, the thing that Bester wanted to explore in that story was a, a Freudian theme, um, sort of like uh, related to the unconscious as uh, a primal seat of duplicity and desire in human beings and so forth. So he went out to have this uh, story meeting with uh, John W. Campbell. He was really excited about it because he wanted to meet the great man. But when he got there, uh, Campbell, he found, was in the thrall of L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics. And uh, Campbell actually asked him to sit down and read the proofs of Dianetics on the spot. Um, he also told Bester that um, Hubbard's theories had discredited modern psychology. And in the end, he asked him to remove all of the Freudian references from his story, Audien Id, including the ones that are in the title. Bester, he agreed to this. Um, he consented to have the story changed because he didn't feel like it changed the structure or the meaning in any really significant way. But um, at that time, that was really, you know, the worst thing that could have happened to him because he was seeking creative freedom and so forth. And um, he felt like, you know, Campbell's uh, you know, editorial intrusions were the exact opposite of what he was looking for. And it really caused a rift between the two. And Bester, you know, this was kind of a convenience that a lot of writers of the period might not have had because Astounding was the leading market of the day. He just shunned that market and stopped publishing there and um, wouldn't really have much to do with Campbell after that. How would you describe some of his short stories or, or that that early set of short stories that he was writing before he got into his his full length books? So after he wrote Audie and Id and had the encounter with Campbell, he actually started seeking out other markets. And luckily, there were new ones available. Um, Galaxy was just getting off the ground, and so was the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And um, so what he did in some of these early stories is that he started to experiment, in particular, with language. So one of his earliest stories when he came back after Audie and Ed um, is actually called Of Time and Third Avenue. And in that story, um, there's a character who sort of speaks this um, very strange language that appears to involve references to lots of coordinates and so forth. And seems like it almost could be some future dialect of English. And so um, that was really a moment when, um, you know, his emphasis on language was emerging, um, the kind of feature of his work that would make it stand out so much um, during the 1950s. Uh, he started tinkering with things like, um, you know, language change as a plot device and so forth. Those stories were transitional stories, uh, but they were kind of very important transitions to the novels that he wrote in the 50s that, that would become so important, The Demolished Man and The Stars My Destination. 
You write about some of his criticism to the point where it almost seems like he might have been burning some bridges with some of the critical pieces that he wrote about science fiction and this whole notion of science fiction needs to grow up. He wrote uh, an essay that was titled The Trematode, A Critique of Modern Science Fiction. And in a lot of ways, this was actually kind of an, a, an attack on, on John W. Campbell and um, the sort of astounding brand of science fiction, which Bester thought was kind of too focused on uh, scientist heroes and science and sort of used those things as a crutch um, rather than opening up other kinds of possibilities. So um, he, he did actually write a piece that was very critical of um, the direction of the field at the time, uh, particularly as it was embodied in, you know, astounding and, and the kind of science fiction that was being published there. And um, it, it didn't really lose him any friends. He had made similar kinds of critiques in uh, fictional form in some of the short stories from the same period. And his editors at Fantasy and Science Fiction, uh, Tony Boucher and uh, you know, J. Francis McComas, they actually loved these stories and thought they were very valid critiques, that they satirized science fiction, but they also moved it forward. So, um, you know, this particular essay, um, they, they didn't like it as much. They thought that he was kind of, you know, ham-fisted in how he presented his argument that um, he had, uh, you know, sort of taken uh, the position of an armchair psychologist to um, science fiction, almost as though he were um, treating it as it's his analysand or something like that, or his patient. He had a very kind of clinical tone. And um, they, they really disliked that because they thought in his nonfiction writing, he got on a bit of a high horse and had a kind of condescending attitude. But in fact, they thought some of the ways that he criticized science fiction in his fictional work um, were, you know, very valid and uh, were, were very important for moving the field forward. So Bester wrote his two well-known books, The Demolished Man in 1953 and The Star is My Destination in 1956. That's over uh, half a century ago. Why are we still talking about Alfred Bester's work today? Well, a lot of critics believe that he had an enormous impact on the field. I would agree with that. Uh, a lot of cutting-edge authors have cited him as an influence, including authors associated with New Wave and Cyberpunk. One of the things that people tend to say about his work is that his technical experiments, his kind of pursuit of certain offbeat themes became so central to the genre that they, in fact, came to define it. So um, one prominent writer, Michael Bishop, has said that, that Bester's influence was so pervasive that young writers sort of absorbed his influence indirectly, even if they didn't know his work. So I think that's one reason why people still talk about him and think he's important, uh, because his impact on the field was really enormous in terms of influence on other writers. I think uh, also in the 50s, uh, the science fiction field was kind of a 
critical juncture, um, the golden age of, age of science fiction, the, the golden age of science fiction had begun and um, was sort of, you know, cashing out its possibilities. And Bester came along and he really posed a challenge to all that. And one of the ways he did that, he was very self-conscious about genre, about the reading and writing protocols uh, of the field. And he really, his work puts the field in dialogue with itself in some very interesting ways that proved very productive over time. So he was really, he was a catalyst for, for change in the genres, especially during the 1950s. I also would go back to something I said earlier, which is that his work is incredibly rereadable. And one way that I talk about his work is I say that he produced writable fiction. This is a distinction that comes from a critic named Roland Barthes, who I really like. And he makes a distinction between readable fiction and writable fiction. And readable fiction, he says, really uh, just um, sort of carries the reader along, takes them on a ride. Um, and writable fiction, he says, has a different sort of emphasis. It actually opens up opportunities uh, for the reader to actively participate in the creation of story. And so I, one of the reasons I think Bester is so rereadable is that he actually has this writable quality to his work. Um, he leaves um, ambiguities and he layers meanings in such a way that a reader can always go back and find new things or even come to new understandings of the text on a second and third reading. So um, I, I think that's also a really important feature of his work in the sense that um, it is very rereadable. Um, the reader can always sort of find new things in it over time. Talking about his use of language, the way that he puts words on a page was something that just really took me aback in a good way when I was reading things like The Demolished Man. I mean, it's just uh, I hadn't run across anybody else who had done something like that. And then also to do it in service of the story. He played around a lot with typographical faces. He arranged words on a page in a way that was very modernist in the sense that uh, the words would sometimes produce stream of consciousness narration, or they would actually form word pictures that were related to the scene that was taking place. It's particularly interesting how he does that in The Demolished Man, um, because uh, he, you know, I've talked a little bit about language change and how he was interested in the idea of language change. Well, one thing that makes his typographical play in that particular book um, so interesting is that he's actually imagining how telepaths would communicate with each other, what their language would look like, and and so forth through the arrangement of words on the page or play with fonts and typefaces and so forth. So um, he really brought uh, some high elements of modernist style um, to science fiction uh, with, with that kind of language play. I was really surprised that you had gone into so much depth to look and compare the versions that ran in the magazines versus the versions that ran in the book, just to see how some of those typographical things might have shifted from one to another. Well, the original serial 
that was published in Galaxy actually had quite a bit more typographical play in some instances. So he had used a lot of symbols and so forth in names, uh, for instance. So there's a psychologist named Tate, and instead of spelling out Tate, he would put T8, and um, that would be that character's name. He actually backed off on the symbols in characters' names, uh, probably because it could be a little bit onerous, you know, reading those. And he sort of thought that that was, um, you know, maybe a cheaper effect than some of the other stuff that he had done. But um, the thing that he actually emphasized quite a bit more whenever he had an opportunity to revise the book for novel publication um, was that element of, um, you know, telepathic communication and so forth. So he actually added, um, you know, stylistic features that um, made that more prominent in the novel publication. Was it any sort of hassle when it came to talking about that in your book and making sure that that stuff came through to your own proofers and and at the typesetters for the University of Illinois Press? They did an absolutely wonderful job with all of that stuff. Um, they, they understood from the beginning that um, Bester used images that were made from text and that he used you know, non-grammatical speech and that he did all of these uh, really odd things with language. That wasn't really a problem at all. I think that the press really knocked that out of the park and, and did Bester immense justice. I was incredibly happy with how all that turned out. Which book of his do you prefer? Do you like Stars My Destination or Demolish Man better? The Stars My Destination holds up better over time, and I, I personally find it more compelling than The Demolished Man. I talk about this just a little bit in the book, uh, but The Demolished Man was also a place that Bester was experimenting with psychology, and it has a lot of Freudian references. And to me, um, even though you know some of the technique of that book is really interesting and amazing, some of the Freudian references date it in a way um, that The Stars My Destination hasn't become dated. So um, I think The Stars My Destination actually holds up better over time. I love that he is looking not only at these science fiction things like telepathy or teleportation, but then also getting into all the minutiae of the business aspects of both of those and how they would change the rest of the world. I mean, just to look at a world today where you have – the introduction of something as simple, quote unquote, as an iPhone and the way that that changes so many things of commerce, of all these things, to think of those huge shifts that would happen and that he dives so deep into those topics is amazing. I think that's one of the things that he actually enjoyed uh, about writing science fiction was thinking about sort of these broader cultural changes um, that one smaller change might create. For instance, in The Stars, My Destination, jaunting has a really huge range of consequences, unsavory consequences for humanity because it, inter it interrupts the economic order in the solar system, creates crime waves and jack jaunting. There's a loss of rights for women. 
Um, there are plagues and pandemics because when people jaunt, they carry diseases faster, you know, than, than uh, medicine can keep up with them. And so um, I find that to be a very compelling part of his work when he thinks about what one critic has called the knock on consequences of um, some very small change uh, to society or some evolutionary step that then sort of like branches out and changes everything. One thing that I'm really interested in uh, related to, to Bester is the idea that he's what you might think of as a pulp modernist writer. And the reason that I use that particular language for his work is that he grew up and he was really steeped in the pulp tradition. I mean, he was there when it was all happening. I mean, he was a kid when, uh, you know, amazing stories came out. And as he grew up, he was also reading modernist authors like Joyce. And one thing that I think is really distinctive about his work is that he blended those two interests. Uh, so he really brought uh, a kind of high modernist style to science fiction stories that still made pretty extensive use of pulp conventions. So um, to me, uh, that's sort of an overlooked part of science fiction history. Um, you really don't think of the pulps and modernism uh, you know, sort of in the same thought. Uh, but Bester really was bringing those two things together. One of the things uh, that that I've I've mentioned is that I really try to think of Bester as producing what I call writable fiction. The author is allowing the reader to co-produce meaning. And I think that an example from his work that really demonstrates this pretty well is the ending of The Star is My Destination. So you have Gully Foyle, who has um, mastered space, space jaunting at the end of that book, and um, who has, in fact, learned how to jaunt through time. And you have his character at the end of the book, uh, who you know, he's returning to the locker on the, the Nomad, um, the ship that he was initially stranded in at the beginning of the book, where he had this sort of uh, crisis that kicked him into high gear and made him go into evolutionary overdrive. And he's back there. And uh, one of the really interesting things about that final scene in the book he goes to the lo the locker and it's as though he's kind of gestating and transforming into something else again, but we never see what happens when he comes out of the locker. <laughs> he's, uh, he's on the asteroid with the scientific people and, um, Joseph and Moira are there and they have a kind of worshipful attitude toward him. And some people read him as a messianic figure, because of the allusion to Joseph and Mary and, and so forth. But um, I think that the ending of the book really does exemplify Bester's writable fiction, because when you think about that ending in the context of the book at large, you think about um, jaunting and the kinds of problems that it's created on Earth, um, disrupting the economic order, creating crime waves and jack jaunting, 
um, you know, resulting in a loss of rights for women, spreading plagues and pandemics and so forth. Another way to read the end of that book is a much darker uh, way in the sense that what is space jaunting going to bring to the universe and to human civilization? He is often sort of read as this savior figure, but if you think about it, he hasn't come out of that locker, and Bester sort of leaves you to speculate on the possible endings of the book. What's going to happen in terms of this, you know, this other change, the space jaunting, and what what sort of havoc it might wreak on the solar system or the universe, and so forth. That's a really interesting part of Bester's work, that there's this kind of openness and lack of resolution um, that allows the reader um, to speculate and uh, create theories about what happens next in, in this instance. Yeah, Gully Foyle is nothing if not a troubling, I suppose, but uh, I, I find him fascinating, but there are, uh, there are aspects of his character that are so troubling at the same time, but yet we still root for him. Well, he's, um, you know, he's described as this common man who has been kicked into high gear uh, and uh, sort of set on this vengeful mission. And he does have a lot of despicable qualities. He commits some very despicable acts in the book. It's not a straight line of identification where we sort of idolize him or anything like that. He's an anti-hero in the sense that he does have these negative qualities that make us suspect him at the same time that we might be rooting for him. I just think about what might have happened if Richard Gere had opted to actually produce the movie. I, I can't even fathom that. <laughs> what was your Much thought? less if he had decided to star in the film. Do you think he would be a too clean-cut goalie foil? I think so, yeah. I thought of Gully Foyle when I was watching, and I know that this was in the original book, that this was in Orson Scott Card's book, but when I saw the Maori tattoos on Ben Kingsley's face in the Ender's Game movie, I was thinking of Gully and all of his tattoos. And that tattooing is a very interesting uh, conceit as well. You talk about how he has to maintain his rage else those tattoos come back for him. That's something that Bester had actually picked up in his research for some stories that he wrote very early in his career, uh, some, some South Sea stories. There was actually a pulp that was called South Sea Adventures. And um, he had recycled uh, some of his refer research for those stories when he was writing The Star is My Destination. And it does become uh, this kind of, uh, you know, cipher of foils, um, problematic character, because um, any time that he starts to go into a rage and lose his temper, the tattoo does reappear, and um, if he wants to move in the circles in the book that he needs to move in to get information and have his revenge, one thing that he has to do is learn to suppress his rage so that he doesn't constantly give himself away. When I first read the book, I was not as literate as I should have been, so it wasn't until years later that I made the Count of Monte Cristo connection with that. 
and now it is fascinating to see, even to go back and watch a version of the County Count of Monte Cristo, and to think about how they could do that story in space without even doing the teleportation, the jaunting, all these kind of things. But he just adds so many great aspects to it that it takes it into a whole other world. It isn't just this idea of take the County Monte Cristo and throw him into you know an airlock and shoot him out into space. Yeah, Besser really um, disliked uh, translating plots from one genre idiom into another one without sort of transforming them in a very significant way. So I do think that even though he always said that The Star is My Destination was his Count of Monte Cristo, and it does share some elements, um, he, he's transformed the material in such a way that it becomes something entirely new. Do you do you feel similarly about Bester? I mean, is one of the reasons that you like his work that it has this kind of overdetermined quality that you know lets the reader kind of play a guessing game and participate in the narrative in a very active way? Or I like his his play with the language. I like the way that say Gully Foyle will move back and forth between the, the way that he speaks in some ways and the way that he speaks in other ways. I love the way that the the uh, telepaths speak to each other. So it's so much fun because I've actually, I've, I've read the books and then I've listened to the books because I'm a big audiobook fan and to hear the way that they try to uh, change the way that the text is, you know, because you can't get those great pictures in your mind of the way that the text is laid out on the page. So even without that, it's a great story, but then to have that as part of the actual tactile and, and visual experience really is is uh makes such a difference and is it really bowls you over well yeah i mean i i actually love the way he uses text images and the way that he incorporates it into the culture of the telepaths and um you know he shifts that a little bit in the star is my destination uh because he he uses those effects more for sort of interior psychological states like you know the experience of synesthesia and so forth, but it's definitely, um, you know, an amazing part of his work. Yeah. And just, you can tell the craft that he puts into it. And so just to read the stories that you, um, uh, were telling in the book about, um, you know, just the, the problems that he had getting the right typewriter when he went off to write Stars My Destination. I was like, oh, wow, that that's a great thing to read, to, to know the actual process of how he put some of these books together and some of the hurdles that he had to cross. One of my favorite stories that I came across in, in reading some of his discussions of, you know, how he put the books together was when he was talking about the word clouds, the, the telepathic thoughts form in uh, The Demolished Man, and how he sort of made those articulate so that there were multiple conversations happening within the word cloud that gets created by the telepaths that appears in the book. And um, he said that it took him four days um, to actually make one of those fit together, <laughs> that um, it was, so, you know, it was, it was incredibly difficult to do. You know, his craft is really apparent. In, in those moments, in those novels. Was he involved in marketing at one point? Am I remembering correctly? He worked in publicity a little while after he got out of college, but not for very long. 
it feels like there's so much of the business world in both of those books as well, insofar as like the corporate espionage aspects of both of those teleportation or jaunting and the uh, mind reading. That might be something that he picked up. He had a particular way of doing his research, which is he would go to libraries. He often went to the New York Public Library and he would speed read books about all kinds of topics. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure he looked at books that were about the business world and so forth. And he would actually um, keep different information that he found in this book that he called his gimmick book, which was kind of like a comp- commonplace book where he would um, record you know, story ideas or random bits of information that he found. And um, then he would sort of let them gestate and stew over time and um, and develop into stories. And so um, it could be that, uh, you know, he gained familiarity with the business world through that kind of research. Um, I don't I don't know how enmeshed he was in in the business world um, in other ways. Why was there such a long period of time between Stars My Destination and then his next novel? Well, he actually left the field again. Some people, there, there have been different speculations as to why he left the field. He had written a mainstream novel uh, around 1959 that he shopped around to a bunch of publishers, and it was rejected everywhere. And some people think that he his fiction production slowed because of the disappointment he experienced in conjunction with that. But a more practical reason is that he actually took a job as an as a writer and editor at a magazine, Holiday Magazine, which was an arts and leisure magazine. And he was um, working for the magazine uh, for, you know, 10, 10 or so years until it folded in the early 70s. What do you think of his later fiction? Some of it has its merits. He wrote a very interesting story in the early 1970s called The Four-Hour Fugue, uh, which is kind of a horror-science-fiction hybrid. He tried to develop that into a longer novel, uh, Golem 100, which was also a very interesting experiment in some ways. He tried to, again, use nonverbal elements of text to sort of further narrative. So he put things into the narrative like Rorschach ink blots and uh, musical notations and computer binary and so forth. But toward the end of his career, um, some of the writerly qualities of his fiction, um, you know, things that made it really interesting and engaging to readers Um, The sort of structural compulsion where the reader kind of has to put together the clues and, um, you know, sort of be engaged in the creation of the story and so forth kind of fell out of view. Um, He seemed uh, later in his career to I mean, his work is is very good and very interesting, but it tends to more more toward a a kind of blank parody or pastiche um, that. Seems more fun for a writer to write, maybe, than for a reader to read. How easy or difficult was it to do the research that you needed to do to find out more about Bester? My research for the book was pretty extensive. 
and um, some aspects of it were um, relatively difficult and, and some were a little bit easier. One of the biggest problems I had was um, getting a hold of uh, first printings of some of his works, which are uh, immensely expensive uh, collectibles right now. Some of them I already had because I'd picked them up over the years, uh, but but some of them were a little more difficult to track down and in many instances aren't held by libraries. I worked with um, the the University of Syracuse libraries to, to get access to Bester's uh, correspondence. Uh, they hold a pretty large archive of uh, Bester's correspondence with the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. That was actually uh, not that difficult to get a hold of. Um, they they sent me out copies of of the letters, and so I had them on hand. Um, sometimes it, it was it was much easier to have a look at Bester's personal correspondence than it was to to have access uh, to one of his the first the first printing of one of his better known books. Did you run into trouble when you were out there looking for stuff? Did you keep running into uh, the uh, Babylon 5 character? No, you mean on the internet? They can tend to get mixed up in search engines. <laughs> we talked a little bit uh, before we kind of went on the record uh, about the movie adaptations of his work and the, the TV adaptations. Did you get a chance to check out any of the TV adaptations of his stories? I've seen some bits of uh, Murder in the Android, uh, which were posted on YouTube, but I haven't I haven't seen the episode in its entirety. And um, I also looked at some. There are some film scripts. Uh, this this doesn't relate to television, but uh, there have been uh, film scripts that were made for the novels, um, The Demolished Man and The Stars My Destination, that have circulated, and I have read some of those. And what did you think of those? I thought the one by Oliver Stone was pretty good. <laughs> there's a there's a common argument uh, about Bester's work that the stuff that he does with language, the kind of language play that he engages in, is impossible to capture in, in something like a film adaptation of the work. And that might be changing now uh, with you know certain kinds of computer graphics and and such. But um, I, I don't think that some of the scripts that I read actually did capture that aspect of his work very well, even though they, they certainly were faithful to sort of plots of his work and so forth. Yeah, I guess when you say that, when I think about, say, the Demolished Man being brought to the screen, I think of the way that they used text in something like Sherlock, where the text becomes integral to the picture itself. I think that's the only way right now that I can think of right now that you could do something like that way that he represents thoughts and the building of conversations with the text that's in the book. The kind of thing that I'm thinking of as well is, say, for instance, that extensive uh, synesthesia scene in The Star is My Destination, where um, Foyle is trapped in you know the basement of St. Patrick's Cathedral and He's kind of semi-conscious because the building's on fire and so forth. And um, there are all these graphics that uh, come into play then because he's jaunting around and um, it appears as though, you know, elements of the object world, you know, like the flames and so forth are actually speaking to him in his mind. 
So um, uh, it just seems like that kind of scene in particular would be immensely difficult to capture uh, in a visual format. Was there anything that you wanted to put into the book that you weren't able to kind of fit in there? Because you've got so much great information in here. Most of what I found I was able to discuss in the book, actually, um, there, there, you know, which is good news to, peop- to people who read the book, because I think most of the stuff that I came across in the course of my research, I was able to fit it in. There are so many good things. And it's also a gateway to other things. I like how steeped in science fiction you are, that you're able to kind of name check some of the other uh, authors who were his contemporaries or who might have been influenced by him. So as I'm going through and reading this book, I'm making all these little uh, margin notes like, oh, I have to make sure to uh, you know read uh, the Space Merchants or bring the Jubilee and just you know it's it's a good gateway into other titles as well. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you think that. I know you worked on a book about John Brunner for the University of Illinois Press. Uh, do you have anything else that you're working on for them? Currently, no. I am working on uh, Thomas M. Dish, who is a science fiction writer that I really like, uh, but uh, I, I haven't really put it together into a proposal for a book or anything like that. So would you say that Brunner and Bester are two of your favorites, or were they just two of the authors that needed more attention, in your opinion? Well, I do think that they they were both neglected authors in some respects uh, that needed more attention, but they are also two of my personal favorites. For me, uh, I'm really interested in this particular movement from the late 60s called New Wave. I'm also interested in uh, the cyberpunk writers of the 1980s. And when you start looking backward from those movements, uh, Bester and Brunner are actually, uh, you know, two people who you see uh, as influences on both of them. So I think that's part of the reason that I'm so interested in them. You talked a little bit about um, cyberpunk. And of course, when I think cyberpunk, I think William Gibson. I don't really think of a whole lot of other authors. Who are some of the authors that people who are interested in cyberpunk should check out? Pat Cadigan uh, and Bruce Sterling are two recommendations that I would give. Um, They were both sort of uh, major players in cyberpunk of the 1980s. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you in your writing? I have an author page at Eastern Illinois University. Uh, So you can find, you know, a list of of my books and some snippets from reviews and so forth there. I'll be sure to link to that from the Projection Booth website.